Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 102 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, as we've been warning about, the summer's getting a little bit slow here with a lot of decisions coming out, but uh, the oral arguments sometimes during the summer take a break. Uh, today we only have one case to cover, uh, and we're going to do so in two parts. Uh, first, covering the procedural issues, and then in the second segment we'll cover the merits, and uh, we'll talk about that case in a minute. It's uh, a lot of stuff going on in this case. Uh, we also have a lot of predictions to cover, as it was a busy week on that front, uh, including a couple of cases that we did not make predictions on, but that we talked about on this show. So for our case today, is it proper for an Illinois trial judge to grant a reserved motion for directed verdict filed by the defendant after the jury has found for the plaintiff, answered three special interrogatories in favor of the plaintiff, and awarded $6 million in a malicious prosecution case to that plaintiff? It seems that the Illinois Appellate Court First District believes so, following the oral argument in Holt versus City of Chicago this past week, and Pat and I will get into why it seems that that is in fact the case. A uh, very hot bench in this uh, in this oral argument that lasted over an hour. The original opinion dismi dismissed the first appeal for lack of jurisdiction. The relevant language that Pat will talk about in a minute is in 735 LCS 5-2-1202, and it states, quote, A, if at the close of the evidence and before the case is submitted to the jury, any party moves for a directed verdict, the court may, one, grant the motion, or two, deny the motion, or reserve its ruling thereon and submit the case to the jury. If the court denies the motion or reserves its ruling thereon, the motion is waived unless the request is renewed in the post-trial motion. B, relief desired after trial in jury cases heretofore sought by reserved motions for directed verdict or motions for judgment notwithstanding the verdict and arrest of judgment or for a new trial must be sought in a single post-trial motion, end quote. Pat, tell us about the procedural issues in this matter, including the fact that no post-trial motions were filed by the defendants. Thanks, Dan. So there's a lot of layers to this onion, and, and we're going to try to try to go through it step by step. I want to add some of the facts, though, as to what happened. So as Dan said, there was a there was a motion for directed verdict filed by the city at the close of the plaintiff's case. There was briefing on that motion during what seemed to be during the time of the uh, defendant's case. And then the case was submitted to the jury. The jury goes out, they come back with a $6 million verdict. After the verdict is rendered, the court 45 minutes later grants the motion for directed verdict. So that's, the, that's the kind of the order of things. Counsel for the, the, the plaintiff was focusing on the second sentence 
of Section A of what Dan just read, which says if the court denies or reserves its ruling thereon, the motion is waived unless the request is renewed in the post-trial motion. And the court was focused on the idea of waiver as a limitation on the parties, not a limitation on the court, and that the court has can always deny the motion or grant the motion, rather. It has the inherent authority to do that. And I think it was Justice Paczynski, but I I could be wrong. She was focused on the first sentence that gives the court the option to either grant the motion or deny the motion or reserve its ruling. But here's where the layers begin. And so that's when Dan read Section B that says relief desired in trial and jury cases heretofore sought by reserved motions for directed verdict or motions for JNOV. No JNOV here. Not an issue. Arrest of judgment, not the issue. New trial, not the issue. It's directed verdict that was granted. Must be sought in a single post-trial motion. And we've talked about the Krim versus Dietrich case before, which says that you have to bring a post-trial motion in order to get relief on a directed verdict motion. Now, there's one more piece we've got to add. And that piece is this, which is from 1201B. So the section immediately preceding this section of the Code of Civil Procedure. And it says, promptly upon the return of a verdict, the court shall enter judgment thereon. There was a jury verdict. Judgment should have been granted. And if the city wanted to assert its arguments on directed verdict, that is, that the, the plaintiff, as we'll talk about in the second segment, that the plaintiff failed to meet three of the elements of the malicious prosecution claim. No dispute as to damages. The guy was in, in, in lockup for right. over three years. So no dispute as to damages, but as to the first three, ele- first three elements of the claim, that the judge should have entered judgment on the verdict and then entertained within 30 days the post-trial motion. That's not what happened here. And the court, the, the appellate court, bristled at the idea that the legend that this could limit the ability of the trial judge to enter judgment on a reserved directed verdict motion. I, I'll be honest. I think it's a complete misreading of the rule. The rule says the judge can reserve it. It just limits when, how long that reservation right. can last. Until the jury, if, if during deliberations the judge had granted the motion for directed verdict, fine, he's allowed to do that and it can be review, reviewed. But once the jury verdict is issued, then judgment has to be granted and the only relief that the defendant can get or the judge can grant is following a post-trial motion, which didn't right. happen here. So there's more. Let's think about what would have happened if, let's, let, let's suppose I'm right. What's the remedy? Send the case back, let a post-trial motion be filed, and deal with the case. Because the judge didn't have the authority to enter the motion for directed verdict. Problem. The judge who entered the judgment is retired, and presumably a portion of the of the motion on directed verdict is his assessment of the witnesses and their credibility, which is no longer available to anybody. Not only because the judgment was entered more than two years ago, but he's retired. 
retire. And you can't go give go. Hey, Judge come Callahan, back. can you come Just back? This one thing. Can, can you can you come back? Hey, we got one more thing for you to do. That's not on the menu. But there's more. There, there's more. And that more is this. Can the legislature really limit the ability of a trial judge to enter a judgment or enter ruling on a motion? Isn't this a separation of powers problem? Now, that was none of that was argued by the city. They didn't argue the separation of powers, the constitutional issue. And I frankly am not sure where the line comes down. Uh, I'll give an example how difficult this line drawing is. During the arguments before the General Assembly on the effective effective elimination of special interrogatories, which, by the way, I again find it terribly ironic that a plaintiff is arguing my verdict should stand because special interrogatories were answered in my favor, proving once again that special interrogatories benefit both sides by knowing exactly what the jury was thinking and particularly putting the element right in front of them. They answered an interrogatory that asked, "Was the did the officer act with malice? And they right. said yes. I, so anyway, during that discussion, there was the original proposal was to eliminate special interrogatories altogether. That didn't happen. There was a modification. My view was is that they couldn't eliminate special interrogatories because they existed in common law and, and the legislature could not abolish them altogether. But could they limit them in the way that they did? A little closer question. They didn't get rid of them. They just told the jet, they just told the courts how they could be used. So one wonders how. How much authority does the General Assembly have to regulate procedures of this kind? I, I think it's a very, it's a very esoteric question, but that's a and a very difficult one of state constitutional interpretation, considering how strong the separation of powers clause is as it's written, not how it's enforced, but as it's written in the 1970 Illinois Constitution. So lots of layers of the onion here. I don't think it's going to go very well on this argument for the plaintiff, even though I think it should, um, because I don't think you can once the simple idea is this. Once the jury verdict came down, the court's authority to, to consider that directed verdict motion, he was divested of authority. And the only way that the city could have presented this issue to the jury or to the judge, rather, was on a post-trial motion. All right. Dan, thoughts? Yeah, the, only, the only thing, it, Pat, I had that could kind of adds an additional wrinkle to the separation of powers is the United States Constitution, and I believe the Illinois Constitution talks about the creation of the court system, right, and, and rules and stuff. And so we have at the federal level the Judiciary Act of, of, of 1789 and subsequent renditions of how, you know, what jurisdiction and other things. So, but it is, it's a, it's a good question, right, of exactly can you limit, can you do these things that control a separate branch? So. Um, I, I, you know, we'll see. Because this is purely a procedural. Is. This it's is purely procedural. a procedural rule. Right, this is governing right. the procedures so. of the court itself. And there's tons of rules in the in the in the um, code of civil procedure that right. are procedural, as, as you know. Right. Uh, so it's as the name would suggest. Uh, all general, all from the general assembly. There's another whole other set of procedural rules from the right. Supreme Court itself. Right. The Supreme Court rules. As and we've covered a lot of those, right? We've um, covered many of those. We've covered a lot of those. Shows. One of those, and let's just 
let's just kind of set up the procedural history here. So when the case went went up the first time, because this is going right. to be Holt 2. So Holt 1 went up and they got dismissed for lack of jurisdiction because, so you've gathered that this is a malicious prosecution case. They named the city, they named the officer, they named the woman who accused the plaintiff of rape. And the woman who was accused, the woman who was the accuser, she was found not liable, but no judgment was entered as to her by the trial court, which meant that there wasn't, there wasn't jurisdiction under 304A. So what happened was, they go that that happens that that order is entered in February. The it goes back on March one of this year. Judge Callahan was still sitting. He he finds judgment against the plaintiff and for the defendant accuser. Uh, the court the plaintiff immediately files or almost immediately files a new notice of appeal. The case comes up. They had to have just used the briefs right. they'd already used, and now it gets argued in June. Um, so rocket docket to try to get it back because there was this procedural issue um, that there, that there was uh, to deal with this jurisdictional question, and that's important because we've seen the Illinois Supreme Court in the Armstead case last year and in Johnson versus Armstrong with Kate, which came, which we didn't talk about this case this case on the show. Perhaps that was a mistake. It's a very complex medical malpractice case, but one of the issues in the case of the opinion that came out this week deals with uh, 304A, refers to Armstead, and you've got to make sure you're granting judgment properly. Uh, that's my judgment. I mean, both the courts and the litigants have got to make sure that they've got appellate jurisdiction um, to issue rulings uh, and then to have an appeal. So that's how procedurally it got to this point. Um, anything else, Dan, before we take our first break and maybe talk about merits? I think we've covered the procedural in this, which is very complicated. Very complicated, but very interesting. We will see what happens. We'll come back with our second segment to discuss the merits of Holt versus City of Chicago. We're back for segment two of episode 102 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And Dan is going to tell us about the the facts, the merits of this case, uh, which are just as complex as the procedural history. Dan, go Thanks. ahead. And to begin with, you talked about malicious prosecution. There's a number of uh, facts that must be alleged by a plaintiff. Uh, the first is that the defendant's commencement or continuation of an original criminal or civil proceeding. And a lot of talk about the investigator in this case, the, the, the uh, police officer. Second is the termination of the proceedings in the plaintiff's favor. Uh, third is the absence of probable cause for the proceeding. And fourth is the defendant's malice, and uh, it has to be shown. And so, uh, as we talked about a little bit, uh, but, but not much in the first segment, uh, this is a case that um, is, is someone that knew the, knew the defendant. Um, they may have had consecutive... Well, they, they, well, let's be yeah. let's be clear. Let's be clear. She she they were carrying right. on an affair. She's she was married, married to somebody else. else. Yeah, and she gets caught, and then she claims rape. That's the that's theory. A, of that, the that's the theory of the plaintiff. Um, and um, she 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 has sex. The 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 person above is the aunt. Is it the aunt? Right. Uh, in, the, in the apartment in the building, apartment where the sex building, takes right. place. That that witness is very inconsistent. She says first. 
Well, I think she's, she's below. below. I know. I she's think below. she's the unit below. And at one point, she well. says she could hear the sex taking place. At another thing, she says she didn't hear anything. Um, the um, uh, as Pat said, you know, allegedly, right? We should put allegedly out because it's always a good thing to do, right? In these cases, um, yep. uh, allegedly, um, she she was raped uh, by uh, this person who who gets uh, charged with the crime of rape. Uh, there's a lot of uh, witnesses and an investigation that takes place. Uh, one of the things that the advocate for um, the plaintiff argues at, at oral arguments is, for example, that the police officer they didn't take um, they didn't take under the fingernails. They, they didn't take evidence under the fingernails to be able to identify. Um, and again, not sure what exactly that would prove because. I don't think there's any question that they had sex, right? So the question would be, even if she had something under her fingernails, was there, did that in fact show negative or assault or something else? Um, the, um, I think she was trying to illustrate the incompleteness yeah, of the investigation she, she, generally, as opposed to any sp specific evidence. No, you, you're, you're exactly right. And, and, you know, um, the, the, uh, uh, oral argument, um, a, a big part of, of, of the appellant's argument uh, focused on the procedural issues that we talked about in the first segment and really went into detail. Um, as mentioned, it was Paczynski, was it McBride? The second? I think that was, I think so. that voice sounded to me like McBride. Those two were, were, were just uh, question after question. And uh, Pat and I talked before we started taping. Uh, this is a case where, uh, at, at a minimum, there should have been uh, appellant counsel uh, to help with the briefs and other things. There, there, there's a line in the brief by the uh, plaintiff's lawyer uh, that says something about uh, that the, the judge had fixed um, uh, the, the decision, and, and the justices were really taken back by that. They interpreted to be that there was some, you know, in Chicago, we, we have uh, Greylord and we have other situations of, of judges being bribed or doing things for, you know, nefarious reasons. Uh, and, and it's not clear that the advocate actually meant that fix, but the reality is, is in the brief, it was poorly worded. Um, and uh, let's just say that even on the factual basis and on this probable cause and, and accusing uh, the detective, I think her last name was Christian, of, of an incomplete investigation, as Pat said, as sloppy, um, as being, you know, one of the arguments of, of the appellant here uh, was that this, um, that, that, that the prosecutors and everybody else was just out to get a conviction and that that was the case. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, while, you know, there, there are, incredible cases where police have, you know, got false confessions or something. Um, I think that the justices in this case, as Pat said, I don't think it's going to go well for the plaintiff, but um, a lot of questions. Like I said, there was a question of the, the person below uh, and what she heard and whether there was rough play or not. At one point, again, she said she could hear them having sex. Another time, she said she didn't hear anything on that day. Uh, the victim came out of the apartment uh, after this interaction took place, unclear again if it was um, 
uh, consensual or not. But in any event, she came out and one of the witnesses made a statement about she looked like she had taken time to clean up and, and do her hair, which again, neither here nor there and the whole thing. But but it's the, the, the facts in this case, I, th I think uh, one of the reasons the judge may have came up with this on the probable cause and malice uh, pieces is that there's at least a mixed version of facts that took place. Um, and there was some investigation of this. They did, in fact, uh, uh, subsequently, uh, there, the uh, state's attorneys brought on about 10 investigators. Those investigators reached out to the ambulance driver, for example, to talk about to uh, what he had seen and, and thought. You know, uh, there, there, there was some discussion uh, during oral argument about she appeared to have been assaulted versus the, the, this rape. And so, uh, but the, the, the substantive issues, at least for the, the appellant, uh, probably of, of her, I think she, she was on for about 37, 38 minutes in her, in her main argument. Uh, one of the, the justices finally said, let's turn to the, uh, uh, let's turn to the substance here because we, we, we get where you're coming on the, uh, on the uh, procedural issues. And one of the justices, right. And we're one not of the buying justices it. mentioned, look, there was 100 hours, 10 states' attorneys, investigators, uh, a woman showed up, how, you know, how not sufficient probable cause, uh, a lot of investigation. There was a rape kit, a physical exam. Uh, there was uh, what was referred to as an immediate outcry to the husband. At one point, again, the, the advocate for the appellant uh, responded that only uh, teenagers could do that kind of outcry and, and I don't or that's only material right, in cases right, involving right, children as right. opposed to a, an adult and the, the justices, justices weren't buying, weren't that, buying either. that either they they said really that's the the uh, um, you know um, the um, um, uh, the the uh, in this case some of the witnesses were read into the record um, uh, there was uh, uh, statements that, that nobody was told about a rape. That, that she was told she went to, to, uh, was assaulted. Uh, the 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 victim or alleged victim here, um, she uh, went to um, Sauk, the village of Sauk, uh village. Um, right. Police department which, first. Which again, it, this happened in in, in Chicago. And so again, it, a lot of uh, uh, facts here. Like Pat said, it's it's almost as convoluted as a procedure. And and again, uh, really, the oral arguments touch only on pieces of, of, of the actual underlying facts. The the first appellate decision didn't touch them. So it's it, it's really. But from the pieces you got again, trying to demonstrate those elements for malicious prosecution. Um, in this case. Um, um, seems to, that, that it's not going to go, uh, you know, in the plaintiff's favor here, just because, um, be, be, because of the, the, you know, the, the justices at least here seem skeptical uh, that that there wasn't at least probable cause. They they weren't clear where the Mellis was coming from in this case. So I think it's going to be very difficult for this to get overturned. But that's but that's what it brings us back to the procedure. And that is that the jury said right. there was and that, you know, maybe the jury was right and maybe the jury was wrong. 
right. the jury spoke. The jury was very clear. Um, they specifically found malice. They sp- now maybe it was they found it because they were sympathetic with this guy who spent over three years in jail. Maybe maybe it was a lot of reasons. They they don't like the city. Who knows? But they specific is there a all there has to be is right. some evidence, some suggestion, and it can be circumstantial. And you know this person apparently in her statements, she her own statements were that she left the apartment several times during the course of this alleged attack. That her the attacker allegedly left the apartment several times to move the car or something during the course of this alleged attack. She right. doesn't leave. She doesn't call for help. There's apparently a dog in the apartment or out on the balcony. Doesn't know not a peep from the dog as she's allegedly being thrown around the apartment building. There's one bruise that's found three days later, and it's consistent with a hickey, not with any sort of assault, you know, any sort of black and blue or anything of that kind. So she's getting thrown around the apartment, presumably by a bigger, by a bigger man or person bigger than her, at least. And, and, and she doesn't show any physical signs of, of that kind of assault or battery, I should say. And she doesn't leave. She doesn't call for help. I mean, there's that you can understand where there. This is where you can have real doubts, but does that mean there wasn't probable cause? And probable cause is a pretty low standard for the, this is probable cause for the arrest. And is there, is there something there? Maybe. And the jury sure held that there was, Um, but that's why we have directed verdicts is the judge say, no, there wasn't, but it's time to do that was before the jury verdict came back. (laughs) Um, So I I don't think this is going to go very well for the plaintiff. Uh, I don't know if it should or not on the merits. And even if procedurally, what's the remedy? I, I'm still not sure what the remedy is that that will. You, you just keep, you just say, hey, they waived it and reinstate the jury verdict. That's obviously right. what the plan is looking for. Um, and then, we'll, we'll see. And then we'll have, we'll have hold three. We'll have hold three, exactly. So with that, Dan, anything else to add before we uh, we come back, take a break and come back for no, our third segment? Yeah. Yeah, thanks for m- mentioning the hickey and, and the uh, counsel uh, explained to the to, to the justices yeah. what a hickey was. And again, justices are I don't know how necessary that was. And things, but they are humans. I think they probably know what a hickey was. Yeah, they probably did. Uh, so with that, we'll take our next break and come back with segment three. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three of the Podium and Panel Podcast, episode 102. Uh, as mentioned, we don't have a third case or a second case today, so we're going to jump right into the COVID segment. And on that, it's very brief, I think. Um, insurers were successful last week. There were several victories in the New Jersey Appellate Court uh, finding for insurers. And uh, I'm not aware of any circuit courts last week, although I may be wrong, but if they, they did come out, I think it was a pretty slow overall week for uh, for COVID-19 decisions. And so we're still waiting for a few state courts and 
I think there's anything else to add there, Mr. Pat? I'm just waiting for the dam to break. I don't think one case nah, makes a dam. Right. Uh, well, that that prediction, we'll see if that comes true. The claim was is that once one ju- one court ruled in favor of insurance, there were a bunch of cases waiting to come down. They were all waiting because they didn't want to be the first one. I believe none of that. Now, there may be a bunch, but they weren't waiting because someone else hadn't ruled yet. If they thought the insurance should win, they would rule in yeah. favor of the insurance. I expect judges to do their job, and I think they do and do I, their job. And just again, um, I'm not aware. I mean... I don't care. I don't think they care if they're the I mean, only the, one. The, the circuit courts at the federal level, for sure, have been releasing their opinions, for, you know, on a regular basis. The few state courts have, have issued opinions. Sometimes it takes time because, again, there may be, you know, they're they're carefully considering the evidence. But yeah, it's. I don't think that's the. I don't think it, anybody's waiting. So, I I can't imagine that courts in the other forty nine states were waiting to hear what Louisiana had to say the only state that doesn't follow the common law to decide in a very pro-insured state for them to rule before they were going to decide this issue. Yep. So we'll see. Maybe I'm wrong. Yep. Maybe I'm wrong. Which brings us to our prediction sure to go wrong uh, for this no, week. No, Not no, a great week, Dan. We, we, we didn't, uh, you know, one and two uh, on the week, but at least we were one and two right. together. Right. <laughs> right. We were wrong together. So our records now are 153 and a half, 27 and a half, and eight for Dan. I am 152 and a half, 28 and a half, and eight. Uh, the first one we got wrong was Illinois was from the Illinois Appellate Court, First District, Muhammad versus Abbott. This is a case where the court held this was a the woman who uh, gave birth to a baby that had spina bifida. She had been taking Depakote to treat her uh, psychosis. Extreme. If you read the opinion, extreme examples of of, psycho- of psychosis. Uh, the court found that there was no judicial estoppel, that there was material issues. There were issues of material fact as to proximate cause, and that Abbott was not entitled to judgment as a matter of law. So they reversed the circuit court's ruling of summary judgment in favor of Abbott, and essentially going to get a trial now. And there had been a prior trial where the plaintiff had gotten twelve million dollars following a high low on an $18 million verdict against the doctors uh, who had continued to prescribe Depakote, and now it's going to go back for a trial on the labeling by Abbott. Apparently, they knew it was a 10 to 17% risk of this condition, as opposed to the 1% to 2% that was actually labeled both on the packaging and in the physician's desk reference, the PDR. And they're saying that if the, if the, ref, or if the label had been proper, that the Doctors would have made a dis- different decision, even though the doctors testified right. that they wouldn't have, uh, which the plaintiff argues would have been a breach of the standard of care, and off we go. So a trial is going to now happen. Uh, Dan, Sai uh, versus Carlick. We got this one wrong, too. Uh, how about you tell us about so this? this was decision? the case that we covered, I think, last week, right? It, was, it, it came out that fast. Uh, this had to do with the case where it was alleged that the – Defendant uh, had things in his brain, and that's uh, part of a shareholder derivative. So, two weeks two ago, weeks ago yeah. actually, it was yeah. episode so 100. Very recently, uh, this was a first uh, district case, and uh, had to do with the common fund and whether uh, the attorney's fees uh, against the losing party uh, could be 
added on or if they came, uh, you know, that, that uh, the plaintiffs won't be made whole because of the way attorney's fees happen in all these uh, types of actions. Um, a lot of, I think, attorneys for uh, companies uh, and, and with respect to the common fund, uh, we got it wrong, Pat, because we thought that there would be no way that they would say that uh, based, based on the reading of the common fund and based on the two exceptions to uh, attorney's fees being awarded, the American, the American rule, rule, or by a specific statute, which the common fund doesn't provide, that there'd be no way that the court would find that uh, the common fund does, in fact, uh, address this. And so we have a decision here uh, that said the judgment of the Circuit Court of Cook County is affirmed. The trial court had equitable authority to assess attorney's fees against defendants individually in plaintiff shareholder derivative suit. The court's broad equitable powers under the common fund doctrine permit the imposition of attorney's fees against the losing party in the derivative shareholder suit, regardless of a contract or statute. And so interesting development. Uh, we'll see if this gets appealed to the Supreme Court of Illinois and if they take the petition uh, for leave. I think I... This is no, not the last we've I, heard I of this case. Uh, the Illinois Supreme Court will take this case because it's an important issue and uh, changes the way things are done if, if it is, in fact, allowed to stand. So we got that wrong. Exactly. I, 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 this, is, this is the, uh, the, the end of That's the beginning. Right. It is not the beginning of the right. end. <laughs> so tell us about BFD, Indiana Court of Appeals, the one case we did get right this week. So BFD versus Kopnik, this is the case where the husband and wife team literally leave Kentucky. They go on a run to deliver uh, an aluminum, uh, some aluminum to Kalamazoo, Michigan. Somewhere along the line, husband decides it's a good idea to get a drink yeah. or three <laughs> or ten. Uh, what, uh, and they have a single car accident where they run into a bridge abutment. I've had a case involving somebody that ran into a bridge above that didn't involve alcohol, but just involved. He claimed he had been cut off and uh, you know ran into a bridge. But let's just say the bridge abutment right. wins. Uh, the, the, I don't care how big the truck is, the bridge abutment wins. They're very you know. Uh, so in he goes. This truck apparently blows up as a consequence. Husband Kopnik dies. Wife shower lives. Lawsuit is filed. First in Indiana, second five days later in Kentucky, but the Kentucky case moves faster because it takes a while to get service in the Indiana case. And BFD was seeking to get their get their money back on the damage to the truck against Kopnik. Uh, and and showered as well on the, because they claim that she's the one who gave the booze to an already intoxicated husband. Good luck proving that. Uh, I'm sure she's going to come in and admit, yep, I knew he was drunk and I still gave him booze. First of all, I find it interesting that Indiana's Dram Shop Act allows um, private people to be sued under the Dram Shop Act. That's certainly not the law in Illinois. This would be the social host exception in right. Illinois law. Basically, you have to be in the business of transmitting alcohol, not, you know, social host liability doesn't exist in Illinois. It seems like an um, outlier, but I, I don't, I don't know so, about Dram Shop X across the country, but that sure seems like an outlier to me. Yeah, it, it does. So the court held that under comedy principles, the case needed to go back to Kentucky where there still is time left on the statute of limitations and that uh, the, 
the court did not err in denying the motion under form nonconvenience. So um, there, there we are. I think it's a, it's an inter- it's a, it was yeah. a crazy case, uh, but maybe not the last we've heard. It's just not, just won't be in Indiana. It'll be in Kentucky. Right. Um, so there we are. So we got that one right, which brings us to two cases we discussed but didn't predict on, where we discussed with David Siegel, um, New York State uh, Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin for, from the United States Supreme Court, and People versus Brown that uh, David joined us for. Um, the well, Let's see. The Supreme Court case came out in favor of the challengers to the statute, and People versus Brown did not, but that's not the last we've heard of that particular case. So, Dan, uh, New York State Pistol and Rifle versus Bruin, uh, do you want to tell us about that sure. opinion? Uh, the, the, the opinion uh, found uh, that, that uh, the New York law that was over 100 years old on concealed carry uh, was unconstitutional under the Second Amendment, and so uh, the uh, case uh, was, was uh, 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 the New York law was found to be invalid. Uh, an interesting. New York had a May issue, issue regime. Right. You had to go to the sheriff basically to be able to show you had a need to carry a special need to show that you could carry a firearm in public. And I think there's just a handful of states that have yeah. such a regime. Um, 43 states either have no requirement or have a shall issue regime like Illinois does. And um, that is, if you can show you're not a criminal and you're not mentally handicapped and you, you're not uh, a domestic abuser, and otherwise you're allowed to carry. Then you get to. Then they shall issue the permit. Yeah, chief and um, chief Roberts and and uh, and uh, Justice Kavanaugh wrote a concurrence, and in the footnote they talked about shall issue and said that in most cases those would continue to be okay, except that they created an undue burden due to cost or or timelines of of uh, the process that Pat just talked about. So. Uh, Read, read what has happened in Illinois the last several years, but largely seems yeah. to have been correct. And, uh, and an interesting uh, thing for the second time this term, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas uh, cited to uh, the Dred Scott case, believe it or not, uh, for justification for a decision. And in this case, Tawney had written uh, in his opinion that if, if blacks were allowed to be free under Dred Scott and the, in the whole uh, transport over lines, that they would be able to uh, carry guns with them. And and uh, Thomas directly quoted Dred Scott, which seems a little bit like saying, other than the play, how uh, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? Uh, to, to cite to the probably the, 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 the uh, uh, worst case or outcome in, in the court's history seems a bit odd. But in any event, there you have it. So then we come to People versus Brown, which is the case, the on, the second time this case has been to the Supreme Court, and likely not the last, uh, this is the Illinois Supreme Court, where the court, uh, the trial court struck down the uh, Floyd card requirement in Illinois. Floyd is firearm owner's identification card. This is a woman who had a 22, a single shot 22 rifle in her house for protection against her ex-husband. Her ex-husband reports it to that she has this firearm to the police. They arrest her for not having a Floyd card. Um, the menace of having a 22 single shot rifle in her right. house for protection. So what happened was 
it went up the first time and the court told the trial court to enter judgment on the non-constitutional arguments that essentially the Floyd card was invalid in the circumstance of in the home, which is basically the idea you have to have your Floyd card on you at all times, even when you're in your house. Like you're in the shower, you better have your Floyd card, otherwise you're in violation Seems of the statute. Bizarre. And the courts and the, 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 the defendants like that can't be the law. Well, four justices think that's what should be argued because it was a 4-3 decision and said, you know, the trial court cannot disobey our instructions. And the three Republican appointed justices on the appellate on the Supreme Court said, no, he didn't disobey our our our, our requirement at all. He just he, he, we didn't give him an instruction that he didn't follow. He went and considered it. And then, and, and he then struck down the statute again. So I don't know what happens from here, uh, other than it goes back and she now can argue the non-constitutional arguments, I guess. And they just aren't going to strike down the Florida no. law. The, 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 the Illinois Supreme Court is not going to strike, under present constitution, that is the who is constitutes the court. Yep. That's what I mean by using constitution in that sense. They are not going to strike yeah, down no. the Floyd card law. Uh, they're going to need some federal help uh, to strike down that law if it ever, if it is going to happen. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. But the uh, that's ultimately one that's going to have to go back down, back up, and then I think an appeal will have to be taken to the United States Supreme Court on the issue. That's, if it's going, if it's going to proceed to because this Illinois Supreme Court is not going to strike it down. Uh, they have made it clear now twice that they're going to employ this somewhat bizarre interpretation that you have to carry your Floyd card with you at all times, which is, as I say, bizarre, even in your house. Yeah, like on your social security <laughs> card or other. I mean, it, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Especially in right. light of Bruin, that tells us that you have a right to carry right. it outside the home. Surely, in the home, which is what Heller and McDonald deal with, the, the right is at its at its absolute right. apex. Um, I I not only have to get government permission, but I have to have the card on me. I I, I have a hard time believing that that's gonna that, that that's gonna follow when the court just said you have a right to carry the gun yeah, outside. I don't, think, I don't think long term this has a has the uh, same result when it gets up to the Supreme Court of the United States. If it, if it, it does, may or may not, it right. may or may not, but it's yeah. going to take a while to get there. Which brings us to the rule of the week, which is actually related to the two it cases is. we just discussed. Uh, model rule of professional conduct from the ABA 1.2B says the following. A lawyer's representation of a client, including representation by appointment, does not constitute an endorsement of the client's political, economic, social, or moral views or activities. In other words... Lawyers can represent Ted Bundy, and, and, and no one can say that you like mass murderers. Okay. Because even Ted Bundy is entitled to a yeah. lawyer, it turns out. And a good one. Because Ted Bundy needs a good lawyer. A really, really well, good lawyer. Ted Bundy's a bad example because, for the most part, in Florida, he, he represented, represented himself. himself. He fired his, his <laughs> exceptional lawyers. And that really was a showcase. He got married. He, he married his his uh, witness and supporter, who was a lawyer. I mean, the whole thing was a was a, was a, a well. He, that's why he needed a good lawyer. He just didn't want to. Yeah. He just didn't want them. But he really and needed. The interesting one. thing, if you've ever seen the the actual uh, follow up, is the judge 
that was on the bench. Have you seen the statements he made to Ted Bundy? He talked about, hey, you young man, you're an exceptional advocate and all this other stuff. So maybe he was representing himself. Maybe he was the best lawyer for himself. But uh, in any event. I, I, I don't know. So why is this relevant, Dan? Tell it's us. It's relevant because, as you said, it's related to especially the Bruin case. Uh, Bruins was announced. Uh, Paul Clement, who we talked about uh, on this show, the rebuttal in this case was the most masterful rebuttal probably Pat or I have ever heard. Uh, we've talked about it. It should be used as an example in a training course for how to do rebuttal. He had both the conservative and liberal justices with responses that were effective. And what happened? He, he, was, a, he, he was at Kirkland and Ellis. They won this case, he argued uh, for the challenger. On the day of the decision, Kirkland and Ellis uh, did a press release congratulating Paul and uh, announced at the same time, it would no longer do firearms cases. Clement. Including right, ones they already right. had. So Clement and his colleague, Aaron Murphy, another excellent advocate that uh, appeared in FTC versus McCutcheon and other Supreme Court of the United States cases, both exceptional Supreme Court and appellate advocates. They left the firm and created their own boutique. Um, and it, it's, it's interesting because before this decision came out in a, in a week or so ago, I was talking to uh, somebody, and we and they were talking about they've had conversations like this that you know law firms like every business, uh, including businesses now about travel and stuff on the on the uh, Dobbs case, uh, have to tread carefully because your clientele, including law firms, are in all all perspectives of the political uh, uh, continuum, and so it was an interesting decision and and. Not clear why Kirkland and Ellis took this position. They're an exceptional firm on litigation and transactional, but for whatever reason, they just decided maybe that being in the in the spotlight on these cases was not worth it. Um, and so uh, Paul Clement and, and Darren Murphy now have a boutique law firm uh, that will continue to argue not only guns cases, but they're involved in all kinds of cases that appear before the court. I mean, Paul... He was on the TransUnion versus Ramirez case. He's on at he's, least three arguments this year. He's you know he's one of the most prolific Supreme Court advocates. Yeah, I, think, I think currently I think he's the number one appearances before the Supreme Court in actual arguments, and so, um, and and so he'll continue to do that, and people will continue to seek him out for his uh, talents, and uh, including maybe Kirkland and Ellis because they may not have somebody like him for their clients. So just an interesting development. Um, and it does relate back to what Pat talked about with 1.2b, which Illinois has, and most states have adopted. Um, and it's a good, it's a good thing, and it has to be that way because, like Pat said, not just the Ted Bundys, but people are entitled or have a right if they can afford it to zealous representation of whatever their positions are. And you may not agree with them, but you know, we as lawyers, we zealously advocate for those uh, those, those rights, uh, and especially at the appellate level. The popular client is not the one who right. needs a good lawyer. That is the person that needs a good lawyer. It's the popular client doesn't need the great lawyer. It's the unpopular one that does. And, but that doesn't mean that the lawyer agrees with what he says. And then, you know, apropos of the primary here in Illinois on Tuesday, one of the first attack ads against Richard Irvin was who's running for the Republican nomination for governor was about his representation of criminal defendants. And how awful it is that he represents these people. And I'm going, 
pulled it. Those ads, by the way, were paid for by either Pritzker himself or by the Democratic Governors right. Association. Pritzker's a lawyer. And for him to attack another lawyer about who that lawyer's client is, unless you're alleging some sort of corruption, which he wasn't, he was alleging you have bad clients, is just beyond the pale. For one lawyer to accuse another lawyer of having bad clients, I don't like who your I don't like who your clients are. Therefore, you're bad. Um, it's just he's a criminal defense lawyer. Yeah, it turns out if you're a criminal defense lawyer, you're going to represent criminals. That that that's 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 in the job description. So so too bad. That's that's who he that's what he does for a living. No. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, at least I wouldn't. I would hope that people wouldn't think there's right. something wrong with that. Uh, they play a critical role in the criminal justice system and. I, Attack, you know, doesn't mean you have to take on the business. I can understand Kirkland saying we don't want to take on the business. I presume this came from pressure from clients or something, other clients that didn't want them to be associated right. with this. But I, you, <laughs> if they're paying the bill, right. they're your client, uh, and and they want you know they don't do other things that prevent them from being your client, I, you know, fraud or anything along those lines. I, I just don't understand, yeah. it, but that's just me. So with that, we well, will take our leave. Did oh, we do our prediction? Sorry, one more thing. Hold? Oh, we didn't do our predictions. Oh, I, I yeah, it'll be a firm. I agree. I just wanted to make that yeah, clear. Uh, in, I, I think in, we're uh, clear in both segments, but yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's getting affirmed. <laughs> it's going to get affirmed, even though right. I don't think it should. Right. It's going to get affirmed. Uh, I, I, and I don't think it should be affirmed on either the no. procedure or the merits, but I, I, it's going to get affirmed. So with that, we'll take our leave. Thank you, everybody, for joining us this week on the Podium and Panel Podcast. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the Podium and panel. Each episode on the Podium and Panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.